So perhaps you've noticed things are in a little bit of a different order today. And I'd like to do my kids' corner now, but I've only seen one kid out here. Hey, Ben. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why don't you come on up here for a second? So. Now, I know you know some of this because I was already bouncing a little bit of this off of you before, but I want to talk to you a little bit about, come on over all the way over so that we're still on video here. You know you're going to be on video, right, so your friends confuse you later, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're clear here. Okay, so have you ever... The question is, again, have you ever had one of those experiences where you learn something new and it's like somebody flicks the light switch on and you can't ever go back to not thinking that way again? Like, can you give an example of that? Do you have anything in mind? Like swimming? So, like once you learn how to swim, you don't forget or maybe riding bike is something that a lot of people would say or, you know. And uh, I think that when we were talking about this, we talked about how, you know, when, when you first see the world as a globe, you wonder about the people on the South Pole, did they realize they're upside down down there or something like that, right? And, you know, once we kind of get this idea of what down is in our mind, it puts us through the right perspective, right? Okay, so... The Bible talks about, Jesus in the Bible talks about being born again. And this is kind of a change in reality that once this happens, we can't kind of like not see it anymore. You know, it, it makes kind of a shift in our mindset, right? But it's rather more than that because, you know, with academic things like you know, riding bike or, well, that's not maybe academic, but like multiplication or something along that line. Once you learn to do it, you learn to do it. But that doesn't really control your beliefs about things. And born again kind of has to do that. So today's service is going to be three shorter messages. And I want to focus in on some things that Jesus said. And being born again is one of them that doesn't quite get into gear. It doesn't quite sync with our modern culture and mindset. It's not a, an idea that we're real familiar with other than maybe what we hear here on Sunday morning, right? So if somebody says, you know, to you, well, you know, you've got to be born again. It's, well, how do I do that? What does that even really mean, right? So, um, so I want to chat with the adults about these three things in kind of separate in intervals and see what you think. See if you can get that, you know, our culture now and our world is so much different than it was in Jesus' time that the light doesn't quite flick on right away for us with these things, right? That's where I want to go. Sound good? All right. Adios. <laughs> Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, but no one can do these signs unless you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Thank you, Jack, for willing to be willing to fill in for Mary in my up and down ball game here. So. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So, as I was telling Ben, I'm hoping to develop a new understanding. Part of the reason for this is I, I find that people kind of get, well, worried that they don't have it quite right. You know, what is this born again, and what are these things that we're talking about? And, you know, also, for me, uh, you know, born again didn't even seem to have a very good connotation, as I recall, when I was younger, and even among some people that attended church, it didn't. So, what are we missing? That's my question, I guess. So, of course, this is this is the conversation. The, the verses are the conversation from uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus. But being born again is actually a much older concept. So I want to set the stage for this conversation. Has anybody here been to Israel? Has anybody seen a mikvah or know what it is? Okay, so it's a Jewish word, right? So it means a pool of water. And the idea is to become, well, basically ritually clean. It's like a small swimming pool that has seven steps down to it. So you go down and you're about so deep in water. And once you get down there, you squat down and dip totally under. And usually there's an attendant there that splashes the water. So it lets you know that your head is completely underwater. And you rise up again and come back up the steps and out of the mikvah. All right. So what's the deal with this whole ritually clean thing? You know, there's no soap involved in this. You know, it's not about getting your skin clean, right? Here's where it comes from. There is a time when we are flesh, but we have not yet sinned. And that time is when we're still in our mother's womb. The mikvah is a symbol of returning into that womb. And, and this is an old symbol that predates Jesus by a thousand years. And going through the mikvah is being called being born again. Okay, now it might also help 
if I give you a New Testament translation. Mikvah is Hebrew word. New Testament is written in Greek, and the same thing in Greek is called baptizo. So we get the concept of baptism from this, right? So, and by the way, mikvah is a kind of interesting compound word. I'm a linguistic kind of guy, and I like this. It comes from two words put together. The first is ma'im, water, and the second is talet, uh, I'll get this right here, tetelectra, which is hope. So water and hope together. All right. So what's going on here? <clears throat> so you, you, you sort of see the symbolism and, and, and all of this. But if Nicodemus is familiar with this, and he is, why does he then ask Jesus what seems like such a strange question for somebody that would be familiar with this? How does this work? What do I have to go? How can a grown man go back and be reborn, right? And, you know, to be clear, I don't think Nicodemus is, is, is trying to be literal here, and he's certainly not dim-witted. He gets the reference. What he's asking is, how do we really start over? How does this really work? Nicodemus realizes that he's gone through the mikveh himself many times, probably, but yet he still sins, and he knows what it takes to stand before a holy and perfect God. And Jesus' answer to him is not vague or esoteric. He's speaking the plain language of his people. So I want to go through this, and, and I want you to kind of think through this as I talk about it. Whenever I say spirit, think about heart and your will and your desire, because all of that is tied up in the same word in Hebrew. That which is born of flesh is flesh, Jesus said. We got our flesh life from our flesh father, and flesh bears the mark of sin inherited from its fleshly father. The flesh man, the natural man, is locked in sin, and with sin comes death. It, you know, here's the connection. Flesh dies, it rots. It cannot enter the kingdom of God. We must be born of the Spirit. We must get a new will, a new desire to enter the kingdom of heaven. Just as flesh is born of flesh, so spirit is born of spirit. We get our spirit life from our spiritual father. It bears the mark of the Holy Spirit. Just as physical birth requires conception and a period of gestation, so it is with spiritual birth also. It requires us to conceive this in, within a new heart, within. And we gestate on this actually a lifetime, according to Romans 8, 19-23. We are experiencing the labor pains when our desire of the flesh doesn't match that new desire in our heart. So, if you're asked literally if you're born again, the correct answer is no, not yet, but I will be. At the last, I will be. Just as though you, you couldn't conceive your physical self, you cannot conceive the spirit within you by your own power. And Jesus says you must be born of water in the spirit. So you must desire purity, the water of baptism. So this 
It's not the water that does the cleansing here, by the way. The water, the mikveh, it symbolizes hope. It's the hope of being pure before God, the desire to be clean. It's not the water. And in this condition, then, your heart allows the Holy Spirit to enter in and begin a lifetime of gestation, of renewing. Lord, create in me a clean heart. second gospel lesson is to the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 33 to 38. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and prayed, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment. And the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants to do it. For they say the old is better. Okay, so I want to get you guys another little piece of information that will change how you think on things, perhaps if you haven't heard this forever. <laughs> All right, did you ever notice if you go down to Giant and you go into the, their newly opened wine section there, you can buy a bottle of wine down there. But wine and alcohol isn't sold in an ordinary measure. It's sold in, in fifths. Why? Why does it come in a fifth? Why not a quart or a gallon or something we'd consider customarily normal. And so this is one of these cultural things that the ancients would have been able to instantly answer. Here's why. In, in ancient Israel, wine was used one part to four parts water to sterilize the water. So water is safe to drink. Okay? So that fifth is the perfect amount of wine pour into a gallon of water to make it safe for drinking. Right? Okay. So now, if you're going to use wine like this, by the way, you would get pretty used to making your own wine because you'd go through an awful lot of it doing that, right? Okay. Um, so I want to zero in on the wine skin part of this and for the time being, let go of the uh, patching clothing and things like that. So again, by our understanding, our culture, 
Jesus seems to be answering this question in a rather odd way. Why don't you fast? You know, why don't your disciples fast? And, and, and he's using wineskins to answer this. But again, I think it's language that Jesus' own people would have readily understood. It's an analogy that they get, that we tend to think, what? <laughs> What's he talking about? So alcohol was a daily need in ancient times. It was produced at home. People were familiar with producing their own alcohol. By the way, fermentation, the fermentation of grapes is also another symbol of rebirth. The grape dies, but rather than rotten decay, it ferments, it's reborn, and it has a new spirit. In fact, we sometimes still call alcohol spirits. And by the way, we're not just getting this rebirth out of it, but we're getting this idea of desire and you think alcohol can change your desire and your will and some of those things? I know it makes me think I'm an excellent singer and a really good dancer and that everyone wants to hear my opinion. But, you know, that's not, that's not a good spirit necessarily. For us in the modern world, wine comes as a finished product in a, in a bottle. All the fermentation is already done. But this wasn't the case in Jesus' time. Anyone here, is anyone here familiar with fermenting something? Has anybody like tried to make wine at home or sauerkraut or anything else that ferments? Can you, if you make that sauerkraut, can you just put it in your mason jar and screw the top down? What happens if you do? It's going to explode, right? What's going on here? You know, basically the science behind this, by the way, is that yeast or leaven, which is really the new spirit, and that's why that's used elsewhere in the Bible as spirit, right? The yeast begins to work on the grapes, and it begins to digest the sugar in the grapes, and the byproducts of that are, are alcohol and lots and lots of carbon dioxide. So if you tighten that jar tight, it'll explode. For this reason, in the ancient world, wine was put into animal skins while the fermenting ran its course. And this caused the skins to be stretched and reshaped as fermenting occurred. And thus, the skins could only be used one time. Once they were already stretched out, you can't redo, re-pour new wine. It would be a foolish thing to do because the skin will certainly burst and your wine will be wasted. Likewise, the gospel cannot be poured into an old worldview. New wine and old wineskins is like trying to manage new ideas with an old, old mindset. And again, we're in this process of rebirth. The gospel is alive, it's brimming with energy, and it's fermenting within us. We are being stretched and reshaped. Our old ideas will be destroyed by this gospel. In the end, Jesus said that no one who has tasted the old wine wants the new. What's he mean? He's, he's saying as long as we believe our old ideas still work for us, we won't desire the new. We need to get, get to the end of those ideas. And that, that, I think, is what our trials, tribulations, and ordeals in life is, is about. At some point, our ideas fail. 
as the leaven of God does its work within us, it requires a new heart, a new vessel that can be stretched and reshaped. We need to let go of our old worldview, our old ideologies, our old agendas, our old habits, pursuits, desires, whatever proverbial sacred cow you hold on to, you need to let it go. The king of heaven and earth cannot just be an add-on to your pre-existing ideas and worldview. He wants to be the shaper and the stretcher of those ideas of this new worldview. Humanity doesn't need another human ideology or a better plan. It needs new hearts capable of being stretched and reshaped. third gospel lesson is from the book of Mark 11, chapter 11, 12 to 14, and 20 to 21. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a thick tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it is not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. In the morning as they went along, they saw the thick tree withered from the fruits. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the thick tree that you cursed has withered. Now may God bless the readings and hearing of this holy word. So, Jack, I have a special thank you for you today for all your parts in our service. And uh, just, uh, uh, I know this would have required a lot of up and down and round and round. And why on earth would Jesus curse a fig tree? Just because it bore no fruit? But the verse tells us it wasn't even the season for figs. I mean, it just seems to be mean. Give the poor tree a break. It's in its off season, right? I mean, wouldn't have Jesus known this? Maybe, maybe Jesus was just hangry. Would have been a good time for a Snickers bar or something like that, right? <laughs> and also, I mean, it seems like such a random thing to do. And it's the only destructive miracle that Jesus performed. And Mark makes a point of telling this, and the disciples heard this, and assuredly the disciples had an understanding of what was going on. And this is it. i got to set the stage again for this event so that we can put it kind of in the context of what's going on. Um, the previous day, this is the Monday after Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry had occurred, Jesus and the twelve had left the city for Bethany, where they stayed overnight, presumably with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And this is Monday morning, on the way back into Jerusalem, they encounter this fig tree. Jesus sees the tree, it has no figs, he curses it, the disciples hear this. Mark makes a big deal out of the disciples hearing it. From the fig tree... Jesus then goes into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles, 
and has his encounter with the money changers there. This is angry Jesus in the temple, overturning tables, cracking a whip even. Not the Jesus that we tend to picture on a Sunday morning. Later, on their way back to Bethany, the disciples notice that the fig tree is actually dying. It's dying from its roots up. So what does this mean, and what does this fig tree symbolize? First, a bit about fig trees. With fig trees, the fruit grows first, then the leaves. A fig tree with leaves would be assumed to be bearing fruit. Also, when a fig tree withers, and, and Mark says as much, it dies from its roots up. It withers from its roots up. Here's why the disciples would have been utterly shocked and taken note of what they had just heard. The fig tree is the symbol of Israel herself. A menorah, the seven-candled menorah, is a stylized fig tree. At the root of Israel is the temple. Jesus in cursing the fig tree. This is by the way, Jesus cursing the fig tree would almost be as unbelievable as someone today, me standing up front and, and cursing our flag or some emblem of our country, the Declaration of Independence. But all the more, because Jesus is the one making these pronouncements, I think that would get our attention. Would get my attention, for sure. The tree as a big pretender. It has leaves, but no fruit, and it's emblematic of the temple. The temple is there to bring people to the Lord, but it's not doing that. Instead, it's become a den of thieves. The money changers are cheating the Gentiles in unfair exchange. The Gentiles pay, but they can get no closer to God with their sacrifice and they're not even offered the opportunity to worship the Lord. And they're not offered that opportunity because of who they are. They're just lesser people. We, we presume that God wouldn't want those people in his presence. Jewish, Jesus' disciples were Jewish men, and they certainly would have been familiar with the prophecy from Jeremiah 8, which in part reads, I, as in the Lord, will take away your harvest, and a bunch of other things. And this is, the, the leaves, their leaves will wither, and that which I have given them, I will take from them. That's precisely what the disciples, I believe, are hearing in what Jesus is saying. The leaders are obstructing true worship. Their focus is on their own standing before God rather than caring about their neighbor or reaching others with the love of God. And I ask, do we do this? Have we blocked access to God insofar as we make it uncomfortable for others to join us? I think it's human nature, actually. But we should consider this. As a result, Israel and the temple will be destroyed. This is what the disciples would have understood from Jesus cursing the fig tree. And God's promise will be extended instead directly to the Gentile nations. 
down to us, like the fig tree or any tree, we too get pruned. All the branches that bear fruit, we're told, are pruned so that they can keep growing and bearing more fruit. And the branches that do not bear fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. A branch that cannot a branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We will not we will do nothing fruitful, and we will be cut off. But let us realize and recognize the eternity in our midst so that it does bear fruit. And let nothing stand in, in its way. Let others come. We need to be their invitation in. Others with other opinions, their opinions shouldn't stand in their way. Not their lifestyles, not their decisions, not their politics, not their tattoos, not even their atheism. They need to feel and be reached by the love of God.